Hello everyone, this is Tarek Pertu from Uncubed. I'm here today with David S. Rose, prolific angel investor here in New York, founder of Rose Tech Ventures, the CEO and founder of Gust, a startup, a fast-growing startup here in New York, uh, and the founder of a number of other institutions, an author of a recent book, we'll get into that later as well. Um, David joined us last week at our education, our inaugural Education Uncued conference in New York, where we gathered some 75 individuals across 40 or so universities, all to discuss connecting the university with the innovative community, that of startups, um, uh, as well as uh, incubators and other, and other um, innovative organizations, both on campus and off. And we also discussed innovation in education and what higher ed looks like call it 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Uh, David uh, joined us early to discuss his, uh, his philosophy, his past, and uh, to begin, David, why don't you give us a summary of what you shared with the audience at Education Uncubed for those that uh, uh, didn't get an opportunity to, uh, to join. Sure, Tarek. The point I made during the conference was that the world we are in is changing drastically and well beyond most of our ability to comprehend just how rapidly and fundamentally it is changing. I started off by uh, telling the group at some length about my and my family's academic credentials, um, just to sort of set the stage and give me some ed cred for, for this conference. My father was undergraduate Yale and graduate Sorbonne. My mother was undergraduate Bryn Mawr and graduate Oxford. I'm undergraduate Yale, graduate Columbia. My uh, brothers are undergraduate Yale, graduate Harvard. My sister is uh, you know, a BA Yale, MA Oxford, MBA from Columbia, MA and PhD from Princeton. Half my family are professors. Uh, so been around the academic world for a while, uh, great lovers and uh, supporters of the academic world. Um, however, that being said, the academic world of the future is going to look drastically different from what it is today. And that's because the world of business that we are in is changing drastically. Um, there is a guy named Ronald Coase from the University of Chicago um, who was the first person to come up with the definitive explanation of why we have companies in the first place, which is where we need to start. And uh, Coase's theory of the firm from 1937 uh, was that companies are established because it is cheaper to do things within a company than to do all the market transactions externally, finding individual people to do things, contracting with them, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so that's why, as starting from the Industrial Revolution, as things got more and more complex, required more and more people to get together to get something done, companies ended up being created because it was cheaper to put all those people into one place and, and to do something. And they grew and grew, and companies got to the, these mega international, multinational corporations by the mid-20th century when you had hundreds of thousands of employees around the world. And then something interesting happened, and that's this whole exponential advance in technology. And so therefore, starting in the late 20th century and accelerating rapidly, you're seeing it is now much, much easier in a globalized, internet-connected marketplace world to find external places and people and things to do all of these functions that used to be, had to be done within the company. And so therefore, we're now seeing Coase's theory work in reverse. 
Um, and so now companies are shrinking because the external market transactions are much less expensive um, than it is to maintain somebody in-house full-time. So now you are finding uh, individual people. If you want to find an outsourced graphic designer or coder or project manager or writer or anything, there are all kinds of places online, all kinds of places around the world where these people um, can be found to uh, come in and contribute to a, a project. And so what this is doing is bringing to the forefront the whole question of entrepreneurship. Um, and entrepreneurs, as we know, are people who see a hole in the market or a hole that will be forthcoming and create a new business or enterprise to fill that hole. And they do that by uh, hiring people, by creating a company enterprise to make that, uh, make that work. And increasingly with all the new technology, it's easier and easier than ever to start a company, to operate a company, to find your employees and your customers and your suppliers and everything anywhere in the world through the internet and all these connected networks that we're on. And so therefore, the takeaway, primary takeaway for uh, my discussion at uh, Uncubed was that in the future, um, there are effectively going to be the following types of people. You will have some percentage of the population will be entrepreneurs. They will be the people who see a challenge and go out of their way to create something that doesn't exist. They will create a new business. And they will create a new business by going online to these, all these connected networks, um, to their business networks, and they will find people to fill specific roles for that particular company. And the people they're going to find are what I call entrepreneurial personal producers because the world is always going to need software coders and barbers and uh, people doing individual things, plumbers, whatever. Except in the world of the future, you're not going to have large corporations employing everybody. It's not going to be a world where you get out of college and you go take an entry-level job and then you're in that career in that company for the next 40 years and then you go and get a gold watch and a hearty handshake at the end. Instead, you are going to be managing your own career. And if you are a plumber or you are a dog walker or a software coder, your goal in life, your challenge, is going to be managing the company of one, the company of you. And you're going to have to figure out how to find customers, how to maintain your reputation in online databases, um, how to proactively keep up with the times, maintain your education, your skills, adapt and change as, as things go forward. And so therefore, you're going to have entrepreneurs. You're going to have what I call entrepreneurial personal producers and everybody else is going to be unemployed. And that's the way the world is going to lay out. And the challenge we're going to face here is what percentage of the world are entrepreneurs? And various people have looked at this and said anywhere from you know, 1%, 1 out of 100 uh, from the sort of very conservative side to perhaps 10% at the optimistic side. I right. tend to think it's somewhere between those two numbers in the 2, 3, 4% kind of range right. who are people starting new businesses. Um, but then the interesting question and where all this is going to, rubber meets the road, will be what percentage of the population can turn themselves into entrepreneurial personal producers, people who are managing their own careers for their own entire lives while doing the functional skills for whatever they're doing, writing, coding, and so on and so forth. Um, and if that number is, you know, 50%, 60%, if, if that number is 70% of the population, that still means you're going to have 30% of the population that is unemployable. And so the challenge for education going forward is how do we train people to be either entrepreneurs or people 
who have a particular skill set and can manage their own career as effectively an entrepreneur of one to manage whatever they're doing. Um, whether it's art or writing poetry, or whether it is um, creating uh, new software projects or designing dams, they are going to have to be able to manage that, and our system today is not teaching that. And so therefore, despite the impeccable education credentials that uh, I and my historical family have had, the wonderful philosophy courses and, uh, and art history courses, which I think are, are extraordinarily useful to me as an entrepreneur and giving me the resonance and the, and the context in which to create new kinds of businesses, unfortunately, those wonderful traditional liberal arts uh, dead white male curricula are not training people for this world of the future because it's not helping them be either entrepreneurs or entrepreneur person producers. And one of the things that you had mentioned during your remarks at the conference was that the purpose of a higher education is to train people to take jobs. Now, I actually challenge that, and I don't think that is the purpose of the education, but if it is, then we're failing miserably because we are not training anybody for any of these jobs. So there probably is a happy medium between our two approaches to this, and that's the challenge facing the educational establishment. Quick timeout. David S. Rose's reference to dead white male curriculum is actually a term that refers to a disproportionate academic focus on contributions to historical and contemporary Western civilization made by European males. Now back to the podcast. Well said. And, and for those listening at home, I think one thing that I've appreciated uh, having, having interacted with, uh, with David over the years and most recently with a number of the projects that I work on uh, is that his brain works as fast as he speaks for sure. And I don't, and as, as fast as I speak, I know my brain doesn't, doesn't quite keep up to it. So I'll do my best to provide some thoughtful questions as a piggyback to that. And um, I did comment at Education Uncubed that I felt that, um, and it was more uh, my, 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 my thinking around higher education being um, an institution to help develop people to become employable uh, was certainly a, sim a simplification of the higher education institution. And one of our commenters, we were using um, we were using an app called Bindle at the conference where uh, we had a number of people uh, just having a dialogue while amongst themselves online while while a conversation was going on, so that they could have a voice with each other. And another individual disagreed with uh, with my thinking around um, universities being a you know, platform to to make people employable, um, and saying that universities are there to help people. Um, to help empower people to become careerists, if you will, to learn, to take, to take control of their career, to think entrepreneurially about their career, uh, seek out what they want and find it. And my well, challenge if, is that if, if nobody actually goal, believes if, that. Frankly, if, if, if that I would tend to agree that that's a very good goal for them right. to have. I know of virtually no educational institution currently that that's, is actually doing it, that. And that was my point. My point is that I think if you ask anyone on the street, why do you go to college, they would probably say, to get a degree to learn something, you say, "Well, why do you need to learn something?" They'd say, "Well, I need to, I need to get a job." I think most people would, if they were to really simplify it, might say that. And and uh, that was my thinking. And and um, but the, I think the larger the larger uh, commentary here is that uh, so much of the evolution of what we learn is dictated by where employment is, and employment is 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 uh, outpacing education or academic curriculum. And if we do start heading towards this world where there's entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial personal producers and everyone else being unemployed, how are those people being educated to become entrepreneurial personal producers? You mentioned that, as well as uh, as well as becoming entrepreneurs. What do the companies of the future look like? There's a million questions we could go into, and this podcast would be ten hours long. So what I will do instead is I'll piggyback off of that and I'll go into a couple of the questions that were asked um, within, within the app uh, around this concept. And the first comes um, by way of Pratt. And Pratt's question is, 
are academic institutions going to employ entrepreneurial personal producers? And is that going to be ultimately, uh, are universities ultimately going to be a collection of entrepreneurial personal producers who then educate people to become entrepreneurial personal producers as well as entrepreneurs? To which my answer would be absolutely, okay. without question. We're seeing this now in the uh, tenure fights starting in California. They're now spreading to New York and other places. Um, tenure was a very interesting and functional solution to a problem that existed a hundred or more years ago relative to free speech and unpopular free speech. Uh, it has since become a jobs uh, program of sorts. Um, the, the cases of people uh, losing academic uh, freedom to, to speak is, is much less of an issue today than it was in, in the past. And, and realistically, having one industry in which people are locked in and cannot be removed effectively for an entire working career is just not functional any longer. It's not, you know, whether you like it or don't like it, um, there is no other industry in the, in the world that works that way, and there's certainly we know there are in the future working that way. So therefore, ultimately, tenure is going to disappear. So then the question is going to be, okay, if once tenure goes, and that's only a matter of time before it happens at every level of the educational system, and probably not for people who currently have tenure, but people are ultimately not going to get tenure coming in, and it'll be a, a very fundamental sea change in the, in the institution. Um, and so then you're going to have universities as business enterprises, whether they are for-profit or not-for-profit, that are going to exist within the construct of a functional operating enterprise, which has to adjust its staffing to its customers and how many people they're coming, they're bringing in, they're teaching, what's the size of the class, and so on and so forth. So therefore, once uh, the institution itself becomes much more fluid, and expanding and contracting and adjusting and changing courses and subjects uh, to meet the, the changing needs of the world as they perceive it, what does that mean to the people who are employed there? Well, it means that you're not going to be employed for life at a university, tenure or no. It means that the university will say, okay, this year we're going to need to have courses in these six subjects, and we want to find the best teachers for this particular subject, whether it's people who have a brand name or reputation, or they're great teachers, they've written a book, whatever. Okay, where do we find them? Well, the world's our oysters. So now we're not limited to people who happen to be living on our campus. We'll go out and, and look for adjuncts. We will look for um, big name people who will come in, and we will pay them what the market rate is for a rock star professor or whatever. Right. Uh, and so ultimately, universities are going to be hiring their teaching staff the same way everybody else is going to be in this new world. And those professors are going to be entrepreneurial personal producers. They are going to be building their brand through writing books and speaking and, and being visible. And, uh, and that's why they will, and are being great teachers and managing their, uh, uh, you know, rate my professor, mm -hmm. um, how their, their students like what they're doing what kind of outcomes they have, getting uh, uh, references from former students who are now the President of the United States or, or whatever. Um, and so the university is going to be functioning um, you increasingly as an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial organization. Um, with, if you take a look now, whether it's the University of Phoenix at the one end or uh, 2U, formerly Tudor, at the other end, working with existing institutions, these are all founded by entrepreneurs. Whether you're talking about One Day University or the Learning Annex or uh, all of the uh, uh, everything from General Assembly here in New York, teaching you know coding and career skills and the like, um, there are going to be a host of new institutions and new partnerships of new institutions and traditional institutions that are going to be the the entrepreneurial providers of these services and then they're going to have the personal producers they're going to hire on an ad hoc basis to teach this and so it's going to fundamentally change the nature of education. 
Okay, so there's so again. I mean, each each, each question will then breed a gazillion more questions. Um, I, one of the thing I want to focus a little bit on the future of institutions that we currently that are that are currently uh, within the United States, of which there's some 4,500. So you mentioned General Assembly. There's other organizations like Flatiron School, Dev Boot Camp, and others. That, uh, Skillshare, if you will, in some levels. Skill Feed through Shutterstock. We're developing our own our own coursework uh, shortly. My opinion is the mindset of um, students, if you will, and students not necessarily those within higher education, but le life learners. And if we're using program as an example, for instance, you spend some $11,500 to develop an entry, uh, 12 weeks of intense, int intensive coursework to develop an entry level uh, set of skills for programming. Entry level programming jobs are about $50,000 on average coming out of school. And you can, bear that, you can bear that to the annual cost of attending university, uh, which is uh, 23500 so almost exactly double of what uh, General Assembly would cost you, to develop the same general degree. Okay, of course, you're having your classes in, in music and, and uh, literature and other things, let's say. So generally speaking, to oversimplify that, you got 12 weeks at 11500 four years at $90,000 to receive basically the same preparation in order to pursue a career in entry-level programming. How is it possible that the 4,500 institutions in today's uh, in America today can innovate fast enough in their curriculum and the value they create for their students to compete with the emergence of these alternative education plans? Well, I think the, the answer is inherent in the question, and that is if you phrase it as the entire purpose of this thing we're talking about in, in both institutions is to prepare somebody for a $50,000 career and as an entry-level programmer, that's one thing. Then clearly, General Assembly and Flatiron et al. Um, win hands down. Khan Academy probably beats them right. because you, you studiously study your, your stuff from uh, someone and you, and you don't even need to spend 11,000 bucks at General Assembly. Um, that, be, that being said, uh, I think the larger question here is the question of specific vocational education versus the larger education as a whole picture. Mm -hmm. And you know, being very elitist, from approaching it from the entrepreneurial perspective, I would posit that that you know that entrepreneurial class we're talking about—not you know socioeconomic, not money, not not whatever else—but the entrepreneurial class would do very very well. To stay in school, to spend the twenty thousand bucks, to spend four years in, right. in doing it, to have the 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 resonance, the analogies, the history of you know, those who don't read their history are doomed to repeat it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, without question, having had a, an, a, a traditional classical education has stood me in great stead as an entrepreneur. Has allowed me to function through three or four or five different careers, completely different industries, bringing a, a resonance to it, an educational, historical resonance, thinking philosophically, thinking historically, thinking in terms of art about programming and everything else um, that has made me a much better entrepreneur without question. Right. And so that's why I firmly believe that people should go through uh, college. When, when I invest in entrepreneurs, I actually um, will not invest in a college dropout. And, I, and that sounds like a very harsh thing. And um, I probably peg one end of the spectrum as opposed to my colleague Peter Thiel, who encourages you know, students to drop out and start their companies right away. Right. But, I, but I, I firmly believe that for an entrepreneur, if we're not talking about an entry level coder, for an entrepreneur who is, has to create a new business and deal with all the myriad things around that and its place in the market and understanding people and understanding a host of, of things that affect the business, I think that an education is a lot more than simply learning how to be an entry-level coder. So I think the challenge we're going to be facing is, okay, if the world is going to be one, two, five, ten percent entrepreneurs, 
who really ultimately will do well to have that expanded background of something more like a traditional education. And then some number of, you know, pick it, 20, 40, 60, 80 percent of the population who will be entrepreneurial personal producers who really, what you're talking about, need vocational school. Right. right. So then how do you, so a vocational school, a, a good vocational school, will do a heck of a lot better at training entry level programmer than frankly right. will my alma mater at Yale or, or uh, Columbia, right? right? But the bigger issue and where I think that colleges and universities have to get to is this whole question of life management, life skills. Right. Um, Gary Bowles, who runs eParachute, uh, the company that publishes What Color Is Your Parachute, um, has done some really interesting work on this subject and uh, he sees that there are three parts of our education system in the future that we have to, to, to move to. And you know, one third of that education are basic skills, reading, writing, communication, you know, presentation, math basic mathematics, and you know, basic history and context and stuff. Yeah. And one third are functional skills to get a job. How do I program? How do I design something or whatever it is? But the third skill, which is not taught at all today, and it's what you referred to a little while ago, um, is career skills. How do I you know, bounce a checkbook? How do I set up business? How do I manage my reputation? How do I find clients? How do I function in, a, in an appropriate right. business world and delivering a product on time? How do I work with other people? All those kinds of skill sets. And that's critical, I think, even more so than the specifics of learning how to code. I think that's the one critical thing our education system needs to move to. Right. Uh, so I would agree 100% with you. And I, I, the big the challenge for me is wit, which universities are going to innovate in that format in time. And I, and I say that, and I'll ask one quick question before I go back to our list here. Of, of the 4,500 universities, a little less here in the United States, how many will we have 10 years from now? in your opinion, if you were to take a well, look at Well, that's a really interesting question. So I think that the, and I think that they're going to they're going to change their purpose and change their delivery mechanisms. So the very top brand, there will always be somebody who can pay $85 million for a condominium in Manhattan, right? right, right. And there will always be somebody who is going to get a uh, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Princeton degree. And they, you know, from time immemorial, another, you know, 300 years, they'll still be around and they'll still be able to charge, you know, 50, 75,000 bucks for a, uh, you know, uh, you know, per year for, for a degree. That's, that's branding. That's, that's marketing. Um, there will be a large number of flat irons and general assemblies and, and functional, you know, apex tech, you know, to, right. the, to the, the next vocational generation, vo right. vocational training. Right. The real challenge is going to become for the, you know, the, the, the lower half of um, that 4,200, uh, you know, number. Um, and that's where uh, it's really instructive to take a look at, at things like um, what 2U is doing in terms of creating Enabling. effectively extension programs, online programs from traditional brands. They are merging traditional brands, you know, USC and, and whatever, and, and, and their level degrees to a much larger audience and delivering it electronically wherever you happen to be. And so right. the idea of a campus-based school, which has buildings it's got to take care of, and physical plant, and so on and so forth, um, will not be able, I believe, to subsist the lower tier will not be able to subsist because they're not delivering a product that the market wants. So the right. question is, what happens to those? If they, if the, you know, both ends of them, you're going to do fine because you either got the high-end brand um, serving, you know, the entrepreneurial types and the future, you know, you know, scholar, poet laureates, and Academic. so on, and the and the and the other, you know, end of the world with providing pure vocational in instruction, which doesn't require necessarily an entire live on campus for four years. 
Um, and so I think you're going to see uh, an interesting change and in an evolution at the lower half of uh, the uh, higher education market um, as they begin to either specialize, they begin to take advantage of the physical facilities to whether they become co-working, you know, add on co-working spaces or um, collaborative environments, whether uh, they begin to integrate with their surrounding communities and, and uh, um, be a combined community center and educational institution, um, whether they, be, they have facilities, whether it's, you know, cooking labs or you know, wet labs or, or commercial kitchens or you know whatever that you can't have in a in an online school right. um, so I, I think that there's gonna be a real challenge facing the uh, the upper tier to figure out how they can best deliver really high value right. and the the lower tier to figure out how they can deliver value at all in this distributed world right okay cool so uh, I should have give, given credit to that original question which came out of Pratt regarding um, will will academic institutions be made up of entrepreneurial personal producers thank you for that question um, uh, the next question coming by way of Un uh, University of New Hampshire. And this, this brings us back to present time. Um, uh, there's so much to be said about what universities have to do to be relevant in the future, but presently, what is the added value that you believe institutions should be delivering after graduation to their alumni? Well, the whole purpose of the institutions provide stuff while you're there. Uh, and then, as a the, the universities were the first social networks. They the, the networks obviously started at the universities, Facebook at, at all. But before they existed, you had the physical Facebook and you had the physical university itself, and all of their alumni and your annual reunions and, and the like. Uh, and most universities have not done at all, a good job at all of leveraging this built-in social network of people who they know where you live, they know what you studied, they know who you are, they know what you're doing because you write to the alumni notes and, and, and so on. Uh, and so increasingly we're seeing, whether it's the um, uh, MIT Enterprise Forum or whether it's the uh, Columbia Venture Community, um, you're seeing a lot of uh, higher education institutions beginning to proactively go after um, their alumni base, supporting them in terms of uh, ongoing career uh, path and career data databases, um, continuing education things and uh, seminars and the like. And one of the things we're seeing actually is an increase in angel groups around uh, universities. So whether it's um, Harvard Business School Angels or Wharton Angel Network or um, uh, Marquette or a number of, of universities are, are leveraging their bases to find ways for entrepreneurs to raise funds from the extended family of the, of the university and bring them together. So I see that's something that's happening as well. Great, great, uh, great answer. Two, two more questions. Um, one coming by way of our own Brian Shoykit at Uncubed. Um, his question is one more about uh, bring, uh, coming back to the discussion of value uh, that the curriculum provides. How, how do entrepreneurial-minded people offset? This is an interesting question. How, so you want to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, um, you are hopefully attending an institution that is providing entrepreneurial curriculum. How do you offset? How does the entrepreneur-minded person offset the debt of staying in school if they're not immediately going to enter what it has been and up till now traditional employment? That's a very, very, it's a good question and it's a very, very real problem. And I see a lot of, of young people coming out of, of school today with great degrees and crushing debt. Um, and so they are almost forced into traditional higher paying uh, roles 
um, or anything to be able to get a salary uh, to start paying that, that debt down. One of the bigger unspoken issues here, and it's an issue that's really undiscussed in any of the, uh, of the common current, uh, current forums, um, is that as the world moves to this entrepreneur, entrepreneur, personal producer, unemployed world, the number of people who are not going to be effectively, functionally employable in this world is going to grow. And so we, we, are, we are heading to a world where as technology increases and as entrepreneurship becomes an increasing part of the future of, of business, um, we are going to have a large part of society left behind no matter what the heck we do. And ultimately, that's going to be a question of value transfer. And that's the sort of the third rail of, of any discussions of the future of politics or um, capitalism or anything else, because the inescapable conclusion, some way, somehow, unless you're, you're a totally rosy-eyed um, you know, futurist thinking that all this wonderful technology uh, is going to create jobs for everybody, no matter what your skill set and where you're going, and we're all going to be highly paid and whatever. That's great. I mean, I think, have to think that abundance is the name of the future, and we will we'll end up in a, in a post-sufficiency world where we'll be taken care of. The problem is I see a big gulf, a chasm between then and now. And I think that over the, at some point in the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years, society is going to be faced with the challenge of it's producing on an overall basis lots of value from these entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, personal producers, and these new companies, and this technologically enhanced world where all kinds of great things can happen, and we harness solar power, and we harness the earth, and all this kind of stuff, and we're creating real significant value. And that's great. The only problem is it's being created by 10% you know, of, of the population, right? And so then the question is, okay, what happens to the other whatever, 90%, 50%? They starve, put them on mountaintops, and let them die of exposure. No, somehow, you know, if society is not going to allow the other half of the society to just croak, then the only answer here is going to be a value transfer of the from the creators to consumers, and that nobody wants to touch that. Uh, and I think that you're looking now at folks like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, who are saying it's incumbent if you're a billionaire to give the you know, leave the bulk of your fortune to. Uh, um, to society in that sense. I think you're going to see things enforcing that, and not just voluntary. Right. And I think that there will be other challenges. And that ties back into the education question, which is if education, a rounded education, this four years in a, an institution of higher education with all the other stuff, the communication skills and basic math and, 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 and literary criticism and, and music appreciation and so on and so forth, is something that you would hope people would have how the heck are you going to pay for it? And ultimately, you're not going to be able to pay for it you know, by getting an, uh, starting a, a company right out of school because the majority of companies and startups fail, right? right? So, and you're and you, it's going to be challenging for the government per se to say, okay, we're going to pay you know three hundred thousand bucks to put you through school and nothing to put you through school. Right. That's not going to work. Uh, and so, it, it gets to be a very interesting challenge for the institution. Do you try and become self-sufficient? Do you effectively tax your alumni for the next generation? Do does, it, does a university you know, try and get a piece of the action from tech transfer? Columbia pulls in $50, $60 million a year yeah, yeah. Um, from its tech transfer stuff. So do universities become hotbeds of research to try and commercialize it to pay for the other half that they're in there? Um, there is no easy answer. Nobody has nailed this one yet. And I, but I think this is one of the discussions that is, uh, needs to be front and foremost in the discussion, and it isn't happening yet. 
Well, uh, here's to the entrepreneurs out there that maybe can help solve that problem and teach them to be entrepreneurial personal producers uh, at any level of skill, whether, whether you're, you're cutting grass, cutting hair, uh, a mechanic or whatever, whatever, wherever there's a little bit of demand, can people carve out their little niche? And then maybe, you know, if we are teaching people how to be, become entrepreneurs and they are faced with debt, maybe the Harvard Venture and all these others are going to be the ones that invest in those and help them offset that debt. I think uh, those of you at home listening should feel pretty good about um, the support that you that is out there to leverage by way of companies like uh, Tutor and, and uh, uh, it's not Tutor anymore, it's is to it? It's you. To you now, yeah. Uh, and others that are there to help, uh, as well as people. So please keep that in mind. Uh, here at Uncubed, our whole goal is to connect people to uh, exciting companies, of which Gust is one. Uh, David, you are the founder and CEO of Gust. So uh, to wrap up, please let, us, uh, please let our audience know what Gust does, uh, where you're located, that's obvious, here in New York, um, uh, and if you are hiring. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, so Gus is a very big vision play. Um, we are creating the underlying infrastructure for the whole next generation of early stage entrepreneurial finance. So given everything I've been talking about here, about this world of entrepreneurs and entrepreneur personal producers and new companies starting in, in the world, if you think about the fact that there are today 5,000 companies that are traded on the public stock exchanges in the United States, only 5,000 companies, and yet there are 700,000 companies that are started every year in the United States. So given that, and if you figure that you know today 443 of the Fortune 500 companies um, were not on the list when the list was first started, so talk about the changing turnover in, in, in companies, and you look to the future when all these old companies are doomed and then the next generation of the world will be these new companies. So therefore, as these new companies, which will be the world of the future, finance world of the future, are starting up, what Gust is doing is providing the tools that they need from day one to find their investors, find the angel investors, the individuals who are who are funding this next generation of innovation and connect all these folks together. So Gust is the infrastructure platform for the global world of early stage finance. Um, we're the official platform for the Angel Capital Association here in the United States, for the National Angel Capital Organization in Canada, and for the National Angel Federations in you know, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, Ireland, Finland, Norway, Spain, France, Portugal, Turkey, Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Brazil, and Brazil, and Italy, you know, you name it. So it's a global platform that connects startup companies, hundreds of thousands of these entrepreneurial startup companies with accredited angel investors who are individuals like me who, who fund and invest in these startups and you know many, many tens of thousands of these companies. So we are probably 90% of the angel groups, organized angel groups in the United States um, use Gust as, as their management tool, 70% uh, of, the, of the angel groups internationally. And so we're building this underlying quiet infrastructure connecting all these companies of the future with all of the individuals who are financing them. And so uh, hopefully it's a, a great way to, to help get to this next generation uh, of, of the economy. And in terms of hiring, we are actually actively hiring as a growing business here. And what we're hiring are people with these kind of STEM skills, right? So it's you know finding really top-notch uh, coders, not entry-level coders, but really experienced coders, is a challenge, even here in New York, which is the fastest growing tech ecosystem in the world. And finding you know, product managers and user experience designers and uh, user interface designers and business development people and financial people uh, is challenging. And so um, we're looking to the educational institutions of the world to generate um, the next generation of these folks so we can hire them. Beautiful. And, that's, and that is uh, Gust again. That's www.gust.com. Uh, what single most important quality do you look for in people? This comes from Colgate. Uh, that's a good question. And the, and the answer, the first answer has to be integrity. 
Um, and that's maybe not something you can teach in school. It's a lifeline thing. It's a, it's a family thing. You get it from day one. Um, but integrity is the absolute critical thing. That's the one thing in our company that is an absolute firing offense. We catch you doing anything here that is not 125% squeaky clean. You're out the door, period. I don't care whether it's for the company, for you, against a competitor, whatever. That's just so. So that's the the primary thing. But if you're asking me what can, uh, what do I think that universities can help to train as a number one thing, it would probably be flexibility because we are heading to a world in which flexibility is absolutely critical. Every company is going to pivot. Every person is going to change career, change jobs, even within the same career every every year or less or two or three. Um, every business is going to change the way it does things. And so if you want to continue to be employable by anybody for the rest of your career, you are going to have to spend your entire life in learning and changing and adapting. And I think that universities can play a real role in helping people understand both the value and the practices of flexibility. David S. Rose, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. The university is uh, listening. I hope you've learned something. Uh, I am Tarek Pertu, the co-founder and uh, chief creative officer of Uncubed. And I'd like to give a thank you to Brian Schweikert, my colleague. Uh, he is the Dean of University Relations at Uncubed uh, for helping organize this wonderful podcast. Uh, David, we hope to see you again sometime soon. In fact, I know we will. And we'll follow up and see if any of your thoughts on the future of higher education have changed. And if they have, we will bring you right back here once again to, have, uh, to join us for another session. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that concludes our podcast with David S. Rose. But stick around for about five minutes as Brian Schoikert, my colleague here at Uncubed, asks David a question about the future of the MBA, as well as other postgraduate programs, and whether or not they take on a more vocational style format going forward. The way that you're framing the university system of the future seems to focus more on a liberal arts education, more on building the thinker, building the entrepreneur. If that's the case, where does the MBA program fit into it? Where does graduate school fit into it? If we've only been talking about liberal art, or sorry, undergraduate education so far in this conversation, um, if you have higher education at the undergrad level, you have the vocational programs. Does the MBA start to become a vocational program for someone who is focused less on less on coding, more on the business side, um, less on the well-rounded thinker? Which, at an MBA level, they tend to assume you're coming into it already with that. Um, I, I think the answer to that is you're going to have a bifurcation again in terms of uh, MBA programs, just as you will, as we discussed, in terms of the undergraduate education. So I think in one level, at the lower level, you're going to have an absolute vocational program uh, where people are going to learn how to do uh, you know, accounting, and they're going to learn how to do you know, basic HR, and they're going to learn um, you know, that kind of skill set. And then I think what you're going to see at the upper end of the MBA range um, is the ability to think and, and how do businesses function in this completely changing society. I mean, I have my MBA from, from Columbia, um, and with all due respect to my accounting professors and staff professors, my, my, what I remember of the details of that is a little hazy at this point. On the other hand, what I got out of it in terms of things like the time value of money for finance is absolutely critical to everything I do in business. So I think the conceptual things and really understanding. So if I had to pick the one thing I got out of Columbia Business School that has lasted with me for you know decades now 
has been understanding real finance, what finance means, what, what, what the long-term repercussions are of decisions you make now, and, and basic things about um, you know, people management and, and structure. So it wasn't so much a vocational thing of how do you draft a term sheet. I mean, I teach how to draft a term sheet now. That's great, or how to raise money, right? But it, it's the, the more conceptual things that, have to, that, that give me the framework within which I can learn additional things that are really, really important. So I, I think that uh, there will be a, an absolute role for higher end um, you know, MBA programs, not from a vocational credentializing world, but in the same way that uh, you know, Harvard Law School is reputed to train really awful lawyers, but really great Supreme Court justices. Um, so I, I think you're gonna, you're gonna find you know, people coming out of these top MBA programs um, with, a, with the ability to think through the, the real challenges of operating businesses in a world of completely exponentially changing technology. And if that's the case, is the MBA program preparing the entrepreneur or the entrepreneurial personal producer? Uh, essentially, the business founder or the employee? And the answer is, I think they're both. I think, I think because there's, there's not going to be a, a pure you know, dichotomy between you know, you're forever cast in this role and you're forever cast in that role. Um, I think certainly the entrepreneur and the smart entrepreneur will suck up everything that she or he can uh, from this kind of education. But by the same token, the, the very effective entrepreneurial personal producer will learn all these skills, will learn how to think and adapt because they are effectively running a business of one. And so whether you're running a business of a thousand, um, which may be the top in the future because there aren't going to be any businesses of a million, right? Um, or whether you're running a business of one, the same kinds of concepts related to finance, related to, um, uh, uh, to, to people management, to team collaboration, to, uh, to how you think and, and structure things, those will all be equally applicable to the personal producers. So I think that, they, that the brightest of both will end up in those kinds of programs. Those were the best days.